what do you feel when you hear the words, God loves you? Does that comfort you? Does it make you feel good? Does it seem hard to believe? Sometimes, maybe it's confusing. You know, what, is, what does that mean that God loves me? You know, how is God's love for us different than the love we have for each other? The book we're going to get into today, Hosea, is going to teach us about the nature and depth of God's love for us. So after Jesus um, rose from the dead, just a couple days uh, later, later, in those first couple days, he, um, he had this interesting encounter with a couple of his followers. They were walking down the road to this town called Emmaus. It was a few miles away from Jerusalem. And they were talking about everything that had happened to Jesus. You know, he'd been arrested and crucified and they're processing this. It was not what they expected. You know, he's the Messiah. He's God's son. Like, he died? What, what does that mean? And they're wrestling with this. They don't know Jesus has risen from the dead yet, and Jesus kind of shows up on the road next to them. They don't really realize it's him. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they explain, you know, their confusion. And Jesus' response to what they were talking about is so important for us. It's hard to overstate how critical it is. I want to read it right now in Luke 24. This is what Jesus said. He, he said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You know, I think sometimes we uh, Christians can wonder about the validity of the Old Testament for our life. Like, isn't that sort of outdated now because of Jesus? Is it, like, relevant for us? Well, Jesus certainly didn't think it was irrelevant because here he is telling these followers, hey, don't you realize the entire Old Testament was pointing to me? <laughs> it was foreshadowing that I was coming. It was laying the groundwork for, the, for your need for a Savior and the kind of Savior that I would be. And the rest of the New Testament authors, by the way, quoted extensively from the Old Testament as the basis for what they were saying. They weren't making this stuff up. And so it's incredibly relevant for us. And we can see Jesus in the prophets in, in the whole Old Testament. We're certainly going to see him in this series on the 12 minor prophets. That, that collection of 12 books in the Old Testament. They're called the Minor Prophets by scholars. That's the term. Uh, they're not called Minor prophets, prophets because they're insignificant. It's not like the Minor Leagues of Prophets. It's not like they're the B team or the understudies or stunt doubles or whatever you want to call them. They're called the Minor Prophets uh, because of the brevity of their writings. So Obadiah, for example, is one of the Minor Prophets. Everything that we have in the Bible from Obadiah is 440 words. It's like half a page on one page in the Bible. Contrasted with Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, the longest book in the Bible, 33,000 words. There's no comparison. Um, but, but in their day, it's not like anyone was like, yeah, Obadiah, he's one of those minor prophets. No, he's just a prophet like any, any of the other prophets. And so um, they're called minor prophets just because of their writings are relatively short. But all the prophets, regardless of how long their writings were, all the biblical prophets really lived mainly and ministered they, during a time of social and political and religious upheaval and generally in this timeline. Okay, this timeline we're working with. The prophets, like the 800s to 400s B.C., 
is when the prophets were active, living out the ministry God had called them to. Um, it was a very tumultuous time in Israel. There was a, um, I'll show you a map here. Uh, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two by a civil war. So here's uh, where Israel is, the promised land. And there, there was now a northern and southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom was just called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And so they were, you know, dealing with all kinds of conflict and that sort of thing because of their uh, division. They were fighting with each other. Sometimes it was an actual fight. Sometimes it was more of a cold war. But they were both fending off these larger, richer, more advanced empires they were surrounded by. So the Egyptians down here, the, the Assyrians over here, the Babylonians that were constantly a threat to them. And so they were dealing with all of this political uh, turmoil and their relationship with God was just in a downward spiral, the people of Israel. They, they, they were God's people. They were placed in this land, the promised land, by God for the purpose of having a relationship with him and being faithful to him and being a light to the nations. And God was going to be their God. And that's what the arrangement was. And they were not supposed to become enamored with the gods and goddesses, the false deities of these surrounding nations. That was a big warning that they weren't supposed to fall into that trap, but they were failing miserably. The Israelites at this, they were failing. They were abandoning God, abandoning their covenant with him. They were worshiping these false gods and goddesses. One in particular shows up all the time in scripture over and over again. They're worshiping this Canaanite deity named Baal. This is an actual statue of this ancient uh, 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 local kind of weather god. He often was depicted with a lightning bolt in his hand. He was the one who kind of controlled the elements. He was sort of like an ancient Near Eastern version of Zeus. And the Israelites fell into the trap of worshiping Baal. And so when archaeologists today dig up cities from Israel from this era, they find little statues of Baal in houses from this era because people would build make these little statues and they would worship and then it wasn't just in the household many israelite kings were officially sanctioning this they would build these altars on the tops of mountains so here's a here's a picture of one this is an actual altar in israel um, uh, that they built these kings they would build them on the tops of mountains because it was thought you know we'll just get closer to god the higher we go so they would build it on the top of these mountains and this is where these worship and sacrifices of these pagan deities would happen they're called the high places if you read the old testament and israelite kings were building these things and sanctioning the worship of these false gods and you can you can read about that whole era in the historical books first and second kings and chronicles in the Old Testament, and that's the time in which the prophets were active. But what did the prophets do? What was their job, their role? Now, when we think of prophecy or a prophet, we tend to think of future, right? That's, that's what we think of. It's, they're like fortune tellers or something. We, we kind of, I think, think of them as sort of this mystical, superstitious, you know, they're like palm readers or something like that. Now, look, predicting the future, part of God's plan, that was part of what uh, the prophets did. It was a part of it. But simply put, this is what the prophets did. Simply put, the prophets spoke for God. That's what they did. The prophets spoke for God. God would give them a message for his people, and the prophets would deliver that message. That was, and sometimes that message related to the future. Sometimes it was about their current circumstance or reminding them about something in the past that they needed to remember. The prophets were most active in times of crisis, 
it was not an easy gig, this call. You would not sign up to be a prophet if it were up to you. When God called people to a prophet, to be a prophet, they often were uh, persecuted by the kings that were in charge. They were thought of an, as an annoyance or a threat to their power. The people often ostracized these prophets. They didn't want to hear from them. So this is a very tough ministry. Um, and God actually described the role of a prophet um, in many places, but in Deuteronomy in particular, here's one verse that's pretty clear. God says this. He says, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you, he's talking about Moses there, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. So that's the role of the prophet. Speak for God. I'm going to give them a message, and they're going to speak for me to the people. Sometimes the prophets would rebuke the people, remind them of their covenant with God, call for justice, call for repentance, remind people of God's love, really remind the Israelites of who they are, who they're supposed to be. And if we take Jesus' words seriously in Luke 24 that we read earlier, then we get glimpses in the minor prophets of Jesus, centuries before he lived. Some of these glimpses are undeniable. Some of them are more subtle, but we're going to see them as we go through this. So we begin today with Hosea, the first of the uh, minor prophets in the Bible. It's going to teach us about God's faithfulness, give us insight into God's justice, the extent of God's love, and the lengths to which God is willing to go to prove that he loves us. We're going to see God's heart on full display. So if you brought your Bible with you, uh, turn to Hosea, if you're unfamiliar with the layout of the Bible. Uh, It's in the Old Testament right after the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel's a longer book, so if you find that, just flip to the right, and it's the next book. Um, If you're new here, we have uh, Bibles on tables here. Um, If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home with you. Um, We love to dive into Scripture together here on on Sundays. There's highlighters and pens and note cards in those baskets. Feel free to take those uh, and follow along, and I'll I'll make mention of some things as we go uh, that might be worth highlighting. Um, I'll draw your attention to those things. So some of the minor prophets are pretty short, like Obadiah. We could, like, literally read the whole thing (laughs) together. Hosea is a little bit longer, so we're not going to go through every part of Hosea, but what we're going to do is look at some representative samples to kind of get at the heart of the book, what it's about. So let's start reading. Hosea 1. It says this, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, And during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. All right, stop there. Um, I would highlight the phrase, during the reigns of. So the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, during the reigns of, and then it lists all these kings. And this gives you a glimpse of what I was talking about earlier. Um, the, The compiler who put together Hosea's prophecies wanted you to know exactly when Hosea was doing his work. And so he gives you the equivalent of a date. Back then, they didn't have dates like we do. They would date things by the reigns of different kings or emperors. And so the two kingdoms are there. You see, you know, during these kings of Israel, or I'm sorry, of Judah, and during these kings of Israel, those two kingdoms, this is when Hosea was active as a prophet, okay? Um, and if you wanted to know about that era, you could flip over in the Bible to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and read about those kings, and what was going on. And you could know, okay, what Hosea is saying was happening during all this stuff that was happening. 
Um, so that's just kind of a tip on how the Bible is, is laid out. Um, so Hosea is speaking for God to the people during the events in the reigns of these kings. Let's keep going. Verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman. Highlight those two words, promiscuous woman. And have children with her for, and then highlight the rest of the sentence, like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea has a unique assignment. Uh, He's not just going to tell Israel something for God. He doesn't just have words. He's going to show them something. Uh, He's going to go marry a promiscuous woman. Some uh, scholars would say that's a little bit of a euphemism, that she was a prostitute, Um, maybe a temple prostitute at at the temple of Baal or something like that. Um, and, And not just marry her, have children with her. It's an unthinkable thing to do in that society. This is God's prophet. And, and what this is, is going to be, God is asking Hosea to live out a shocking object lesson for the Israelites to see. God wants to show them the painful seriousness of their religious promiscuity, that they have been unfaithful to God. They've given themselves to these false gods and idols, and God wants them to really grasp on a gut level how shocking it is that he would still love them even though they've done that. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. I'm going to have you circle and underline a number of things um, in this passage as we go through just to kind of track with it. So he tells Hosea, you're going to marry this woman and you're going to have children with her. Verse 3. So he married Gomer, circle her name, Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, circle that name, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, that's something that had happened uh, in the past, and, highlight this, I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Verse 5, in that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said uh, to Hosea, call her Lo Ruhamah. Circle that name. That's the Hebrew word there, uh, Lo Ruhamah. And then highlight what it means, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. Verse 8, after she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, um, Gomer had another son, then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, circle his name, Lo-Ami, and then highlight the meaning of this, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Whew. So he marries Gomer, and uh, she has these three children, and the three children are going to serve as further metaphors for the brokenness between Israel and God. Uh, many commentators believe, based on the broader context in Hosea, that a couple of these kids weren't even Hosea's. That Gomer was continuing to be unfaithful and having these children, and Hosea is, is uh, taking care of them within uh, his marriage uh, to Gomer. And the names are significant. The son, first son's name is Jezreel. Um, it brought to mind this slaughter that had happened, and God was going to punish Israel for that. 
um, then the daughter's name is not loved. I mean, that's literally what they named the daughter. Like, she's walking around the house, and they're like, not loved. You know, will you go, you know, clean up your room? Not loved. The son is not my people. I mean, this seems pretty hopeless at this point, okay? <laughs> There's no redemption, no grace to be found. Um, and throughout chapter 2, as you keep reading, you'll see more of this. Israel, it's a metaphor for Israel as a, an unfaithful spouse to the Lord. They've abandoned him. But then there starts to be a change in chapter 2. Israel, again, is described as a wayward spouse, a wayward bride. And God says this of her, starting in chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to kind of, um, as I said, kind of skip around a little bit. So 2, 14. And even this section, we're going to skip a little bit. God is saying this about Israel, his wayward bride. I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Skip to 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in, and then highlight this, righteousness and justice in love and compassion. Righteousness and justice in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is telling us that no matter how broken a relationship is with God, his love never runs out. He desires his people. He wants a relationship with them. Have you ever thought about that for yourself? God he doesn't just sort of coldly offer you a relationship with him. He wants a relationship with you. And he really cares if it's not happening. God's wearing his heart on his sleeve. And, and, and he's conveying this idea via Hosea and what he's going through. He says, my people are going to be joined to me in righteousness and justice and in love and compassion. And, and that's a really significant thing because you see this throughout the prophets, that God's justice and his love are not mutually exclusive. God calls out sin. He does not back down from the fact that it's sin. He is holy. He is just, but he is also infinitely loving and compassionate. And he wants us to repent, and he wants to forgive us, and he wants to welcome us home. And that's what we're seeing here. Let's keep reading, starting in chapter 3, verse 1, Hosea 3. This is Hosea speaking. He says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. And then highlight this right here, this phrase. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Okay, I have to stop there and explain that. I can't move on like I didn't just read sacred raisin cakes. I joked this morning, I brought donuts for the setup team, and I said, uh, maybe I should have gotten some sacred raisin cakes instead of donuts. I don't know what they are. Um, I also said there needs to be a Christian ska band called the Sacred Raisin Cakes. Um, so we had a lot of fun with that this morning. Uh, but what that is, is in these pagan worship rituals, they, that was part of it. It was like a feast uh, that they, they would um, have. And, and so this is a way of saying, look, uh, lo Hosea, love uh, your wife as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and they participate in these pagan rituals. That's what that's saying. So verse 2, this is Hosea talking again. He says, so I bought her. Highlight that. I bought her. 
for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lefek of barley. Those are units of measure. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I'll behave the same way toward you. So here's what happened. You know, he married Gomer. They had these kids. She's continuing to commit adultery. Hosea, it would have been very acceptable for him to leave her, divorce her, but he's told by God here, pursue her anyway. Just keep pursuing her. Go after her in spite of her unfaithfulness to you. This is um, a, a, a picture, God's saying, this is a picture of how I'm pursuing Israel. If it shocks you that Hosea would continue to pursue Gomer with everything she's doing, it should be equally and infinitely more shocking that Israel keeps pursu- or God keeps pursuing Israel. And then it says, Hosea goes and buys back Gomer from someone who had purchased her. She, she had left him. She had had these kids with him and left him and had been purchased by someone. He pays a price to bring her home again, this adulterous wife, to show her what this steadfast, sacrificial love looks like. And as you keep reading Hosea, uh, this is true of all the minor prophets, it kind of switches back and forth. You have sections where it's like, look how loving and faithful God is, and then it'll switch back to kind of indicting Israel for the ways that they have abandoned God. And as you keep reading, you see more of that. And there's a couple verses like that I want to draw your attention to in chapter 7. So flip over to 7.13. 7.13. God says this, Woe to them because they've strayed from me. Destruction to them because they've rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. Highlight this phrase. They do not cry out to me from their hearts. They do not cry out to me from their hearts. But wail on their beds. They slash themselves. That again was part of the pagan worship ritual. They slash themselves. Appealing to their gods for grain and new wine. Highlight that. Grain and new wine. They turn away from me. Grain and new wine. Here, the reason I draw your attention to these couple verses, here you get the reason why they've turned away from God. They don't trust him. They don't trust God. They live in an agricultural world. Their crops are everything. All kinds of anxiety uh, for, for, uh, you know, being able to provide for your family depending on the weather and that sort of thing. So they did the culturally acceptable thing, which was turn to the local weather god, Baal. Bless our crops. Instead of trusting in God and crying out to him from their hearts, like it just said. Instead, they engage in these pagan fertility rituals. These, uh, they worship Baal. You know, God had chosen them as a people. He'd proved himself trustworthy for generations. He'd placed them in the promised land. And instead, they're looking somewhere else for their hope. They don't trust him. That sounds a lot like us, I think. When God isn't delivering for us in the manner and timing of our choosing, we look elsewhere. I mean, we, we take matters into our own hands. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. We, we, we trust more in our money or our financial stability or our professional success or maybe our appearance or, uh, you know, our, our family stability. That's where, you know, we really feel safe as if our family's okay, our, our jobs, our friend group, our popularity. The list could go on. I may have left your false God out, but we all have one that we turn to. 
something we turn to instead of God where we feel safe or we find a sense of identity or protection. You want to know what mine is? I retreat to reason. I, when I'm going through something hard, you know, just something I'm confused about or stressed, uh, often when I get that quiet moment where what I should do is first go to the Lord and, and pray and cry out and say, God, would you help me and give me clarity and, and, and comfort? I instead get out the legal pad and I write everything out and I'm just going to think my way through this. You know, I'm going to make the most epic pros and cons list you've ever seen. And it's going to just cover everything. And I'm going to think about every unintended consequence. And I'm just going to reason my way through this thing. And I'm trusting in my own thinking instead of God. That's what that is. And look, it's not wrong to think through things and be wise. But it's a question of degree. And it's a question of where you're going first. And I fail at this routinely. We all have something like that. That we turn to instead of God. Now, we might not be trying to summon a weather god for our crops, but we do things like that. We try to just kind of pull all the right levers in life and turn all the dials to get God's attention. You know, God, pay attention to me, take care of me. If I just do it all right, and you know, God will have a friendly disposition toward me. And that shows we don't really trust that he loves us and he's taking care of us. We find ourselves worshiping at the altar of some false God that we've created, often in our own image. The same inclination that the ancient Israelites had to abandon God, it's in all of us. We don't realize how much God loves us and cares for us. I want to look now at chapter 11. Flip over to chapter 11. God is now going to speak of his people with a different metaphor. He's been speaking about his people uh, with the metaphor of them being an unfaithful spouse. But he's going to switch metaphors now and speak of his people as a child, really a toddler, when you look at the images that he's, he's painting. I, I think this is one of the most tender descriptions of God's love in the whole Bible. Uh, so let's read uh, Hosea 11, starting in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Highlight that phrase, out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Highlight that, taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is often a synonym for Israel. Taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. Highlight that, little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. Highlight that, I bent down to feed them. This section, it's like God's having flashbacks to the birth of his child, Israel, the nation, Israel. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Remember the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God led them out through the, through, uh, the leadership of Moses. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is when they were born. My child was born. They were, I rescued them from slavery. This was their birth as a nation. God taught them how to walk. He took them by the arm. It's this image of the toddler just learning to walk and trusting in the parent, you know, reaching up and holding their fingers this is the image painted of God's tender love and guidance of infant Israel. He taught Israel to walk. He hugged them 
to his cheek. He bent down to feed them. He took care of them. And this section in Hosea, it, it, the way it feels to me as I read it, it it's, it's like God is thinking about this, but almost like a parent who's estranged from their adult child. You know? Flashing back to those big moments when the kid was born, teaching them to walk, you know, carrying them upstairs to bed, teaching them how to eat, wondering, how, how did this all go wrong? This is how God views us when we stray from him. He cares. It grieves him. He loves us. But as you keep reading in chapter 14, we see hope. Skip over to 14. It's the last little bit we'll read. Hosea is going to offer hope to Israel. Uh, He's going to suggest that they go home to the Lord. He's even going to give them advice on what they should say to God. And then we're going to see God's response. And I'll highlight those things for you. Hosea 14, verse 1. He says, return Israel to the Lord your God. Highlight that. That's Hosea, his call to the people of Israel. Return to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, and here's his suggestion of what they should say. I would highlight this. Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never say again, our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. And then highlight this last little bit. This is God's reply. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. Love them freely. When we come to God with a repentant heart, when we ask for his grace, God forgives and we experience his fatherly love. Even if we've been unfaithful, even if we haven't trusted in him, even if we've wandered away, he's always waiting, always hoping that we will come back home. And Jesus provided the way for all of us to come back home. And so in reading Hosea, when we think about God's love and how it ultimately points to Christ, there's a couple of big ideas I want us to make sure uh, to learn in this. This is the first one. Hosea points to our need for Jesus. Hosea points to our need for Jesus. If we don't trust that God loves us, we will be unfaithful. We will search for hope somewhere else. If we don't trust that God's going to provide, we will look to gods of our own making. Even when God is good to us, we will find ways to ignore or abandon him. The desire to go our own way is in all of us. The New Testament calls it our flesh. And look, God is just. He punishes the sin of idolatry. He has no tolerance for it. Sin must be dealt with. It must be paid for. But praise God, his justice is never alone. Hosea shows us that his justice always is accompanied by his love. There's that intersection of God's love and his justice. In his justice, the sin of idolatry will be punished. It really does break our relationship with him. But his love overshadows it. And the cross of Christ is the definitive example of this intersection. God did not back down one bit on the seriousness of our sin. But in the most reckless, astonishing act of love, God himself paid the debt of our sin, of our idolatry. 
He gave his own son, a son who would leave heaven, grow up here, learn to walk here, be nurtured here by imperfect human parents. And Hosea paints this picture for us. But Hosea doesn't just point to our need for Jesus. This is the second thing. Hosea actually points to Jesus directly if we're looking for it. You may remember, we we usually talk about this around Christmas time, but uh, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, King Herod, the paranoid king, was trying to get rid of the newborn Messiah, so he had all the uh, little boys in Bethlehem killed. And uh, God warned Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, get out of town, go to Egypt, you'll be safe there. And I want to read for a second what, what God said to Joseph. Matthew 2, let's put it up on the screen here. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. It's Hosea. Matthew tells us that Hosea's statement of, you know, out of Egypt I called my son, that did not just apply to the people of Israel, which was figuratively God's son that spent their infancy in Egypt. It pointed forward ultimately to God's actual son, Jesus, who also spent his childhood in Egypt. And God called Jesus out of Egypt to go forward with his ministry. He would grow up to live a life and give that life so that we could become children of God. No matter how far we've run, turned our back on God. He still loves us. He still calls us home. And Jesus is the way to experience God's love uninhibitedly for all of eternity because the penalty for our sins has been fully and finally paid on the cross. God's justice has been satisfied. If we place our faith in Christ, if we make him Lord of our life, the debt's been paid and we can have this unbroken relationship with God. And, and when we go to him, it's not trying to impress him or earn his love. It's expressing our love to him and our gratitude for what he's done for us and saying, Lord, would you help lead me through life? Help me today to follow you. But his love is not in question. In those moments when we wonder, why would God do all this? Why would he give himself for me? We can look to places like Hosea, where God wears his heart on his sleeve, where he just openly says, I am grieved by the distance between us. He desperately wants to bridge the divide. It's not charity. God is not giving us charity. He really wants a relationship with us. It's not a favor. He doesn't love us in some abstract way, like he just sort of loves us all as a group and we're just kind of caught up in that. No, he loves us in a real way as individuals. I remember Rich Mullins, the uh, famous Christian songwriter uh, from the like, 80s and 90s, uh, when he was struggling in his journey of faith and he wasn't quite convinced yet in God's love for him, people would tell him, you know, God loves you. And Rich would say, yeah, big deal. God loves everyone. That doesn't make me special. But he does love all of us, and not just all of us. I'm going to put this on the screen. God loves all of us, and he also loves each of us. He loves each of us. 
we're not just a number to God. We matter. We get a glimpse of God's love in Hosea's life. Remember, God wanted his life to be an object lesson for us. The way that Hosea showed this costly, reckless, sacrificial love to Gomer, who did not deserve it. He married someone who didn't deserve his love and devotion, yet he gave it. He literally purchased her back at a cost when she was unfaithful. This gives us a window into the heart of God. A God who would one day definitively prove his love through the costliest sacrifice of all, himself. Himself. 